When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hello welcome. and welcome. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Perfect. Hello and welcome. Perfect. It all stays in. Welcome <laughs> to Star Trek The Pod Directive. I am one of your co-hosts, Paul F. Tompkins. I am co-hosting as well. I am Tawny Newsom. <laughs> Sometimes we talk at the same time. It's fun. That's what co-hosting, that's when you're really co-hosting. That's true. All that other shit, that's <laughs> fake shit. That's fake co-hosting, is when you just talk at different times. Oh, first I go, then you go. Come on. What is this, a dialogue? <laughs> no, this is a chorus. <laughs> it's a dual monologue. It's never been As attempted before. It is spoken <laughs> harmony. <laughs> ah! <laughs> We've cracked it. Yes, but this is the show that you've now listened to a handful of episodes for, theoretically. <laughs> or maybe you're just popping in now. It could be. Yes, but this episode is a little bit different. This, Tony, you know what this is? Huh? It's our first very special episode. It is a very special episode. <laughs> this is like, and I reference this all the time, I, I think the first very special episode of anything I was ever aware of was the television show Dinosaurs, R.I.P., where there was <laughs> a, an episode about drugs and Robbie the dinosaur, who was a teenager and a boy, you knew because of his Letterman jacket, he smoked something close to marijuana. And then all the dinosaurs afterwards had to address, you know, like how the cast of a sitcom would yeah. sit down after out of character and like address the studio audience, and the audience at home. But the dinosaurs did it. They were still in the dinosaur getup. It was insane. What? Why would they do that? Hey, man, it worked. I did not want to do drugs after that. I, now, because you're younger than I, did you watch that show and not find the dinosaurs terrifying? No, I loved them. They were my friends. Oh, I thought those <laughs> costumes were so horrifying. The, the willies, the willies I got. I, I think it's because of all the Trek that I watched. I'd seen way more terrifying monster get-ups. <laughs> <laughs> I'm serious. <laughs> A lot of people don't realize that, tr that Star Trek will prepare you to watch dinosaurs. <laughs> You look at, uh, what's the guy's name at, at Quark's? Morn? The guy whose head is just a, oh, an angry dude. potato? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> with teeth? <laughs> yeah, you look at Morn enough when you're a kid, you're okay with a dinosaur in a Letterman jacket. I feel like he invented resting bitch face. He probably did. Honestly, shout out to a king. <laughs> what what a frown. <laughs> yeah, he wasn't having it. <laughs> uh, 
Well, okay, so not only is this our first very special episode, it's also an episode where we're breaking format. We're shaking things up. Yes. As we've told you all in earlier episodes, uh, you know, we recorded the majority of these interviews, some of them like last year, a long time ago. This is the first one that was recorded somewhat in real time. We recorded it this summer. Paul was not in attendance for this. I don't know why I said it like that. It made it sound like you had some obligation <laughs> elsewhere. <laughs> I was on assignment. No, I was I was not part of I was not part of this particular conversation with with very good reason as you will see. Yeah, so Kendra James who is the uh managing editor of startrek.com also helps on this podcast. She's been instrumental in kind of putting it together these long, you know, 10 months we've been working on it. It was I think really her idea to do a more timely episode addressing tough topics. I mean, specifically we're talking about blackness in Trek, so basically we just we got a bunch of black women to talk about blackness in Trek. It's kind of a dream for me. It's more than just a bunch of black women. It's uh, very, very specific. The amount. (laughs) That makes it sound like you like opened a studio door. Like, hey, any black ladies? You want to talk Trek? I'll be like, baby, what you talking about? Um, But no, but the amount of black women, we have have four black women on this. I mean, I'm including me, but we have Kendra Mm -hmm. James, we have Angelica Jade Bastian, and we have Michelle Hurd. That's more black people than I've ever talked to about Trek. Mm -hmm. And it might be Mm -hmm. more women that I've ever talked to about Trek. Yeah. That's wild. I just listened to it and it's a a really terrific conversation. And we're long overdue as a society, I think, specifically for uh, uh, my section of society, to really be paying attention to other people's stories. And it's not just about, uh, not just in a, in a, you know, like a self-flagellating scolding way. It's, it's like, just listen to other people's experiences. It's really important. And I think that you all being able to talk so openly and so in such a familiar way without having to explain stuff, it's, it's so wonderful to listen to. And, uh, there's a lot of stuff I, I already knew. There's a lot of stuff I learned for the first time. I'm so, uh, uh, proud of this episode that I had nothing to do with. (laughs) (laughs) That's good. I like that. I like that you could be, you could be proud of this. Yeah. Well, we get into a lot in this episode. Um, oh man, you know, you know, we talk Plato's stepchildren. It comes towards the end. So don't (laughs) even worry. Don't even get scared that we're not going to get to it. The one thing that you all forgot, I also forgot. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Get ready for this. I mean, probably like hardcore TOS fans did not forget this. I had never Mm -hmm. seen really that episode. I I've told you guys before, I haven't really watched much TOS. So I just knew the trivia about it and had never actually watched it. So watching it uh, in 2020 was uh, <laughs> quite a choice that I made for myself. Um, you know, we, t- we get into it in the episode. I won't belabor yeah. it here. It's such a great, fun and meaningful and serious and light conversation. It's, it's really got everything. And um, yeah, I think people are really going to like it. Well, thanks, Paul. And we'll get to that conversation right after this break. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. From the 
world of Sonic the Hedgehog, a new hero arrives. I am ready. Is there anyone stronger? No. Ha! Tougher? No. Funnier? I do not make jokes. I make warriors. Knuckles, now streaming only on Paramount Plus. Yes! Michelle Hurd joined the Star Trek universe in 2019 as Raffi Musiker on Star Trek Picard. Michelle, what's going on? Hey, hey, doing good. How you doing, my dear? It's good to see you. I'm good. Oh, it's good to see you too through our Zoom screens here. Mm-hmm. <laughs> our next guest, Angelica Jade Bastian, is a staff writer at New York Magazine, where she writes about film, television, and culture for Vulture.com. Hey, Angelica. Hey, thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited to talk Star Trek. Oh, I love that. Me too. I love when people want to talk about the thing I want to talk about selfishly. (laughs) (laughs) And Kendra James is a writer and the managing editor at StarTrek.com. Kendra, hey girl. Hey, how are you? I'm good. Um, You were the only person I knew on this panel ahead of time. True or false? (laughs) Uh, True. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Kendra, you've been so helpful in the, really like the entire organization of bringing this podcast to be in existence. Um, How's it been working on it for you? Oh, thank you so much for that. It wasn't just me. We have a really great team at on StarTrek.com where this podcast will live. But um, it's been really fun. This group of four women, like, One of my dreams as a kid was to just, like, be able to talk about Star Trek with four Black people outside of my parents. Uh, Sure, sure, sure. And so (laughs) this is, like, this is, like, delightful. I'm so happy. (laughs) Agreed. And to just talk with, like, four women talking about Trek. I mean, this space has never existed in my life. It's rare on a podcast that you get to sit down with three other Black women and talk about anything. Um, So this feels really, really special. Yeah. Have either of you, Angelica or Michelle, have either of you had an experience like this? No, actually, no. Now that you mention it, I haven't. That's so weird to think about, though, because I love Star Trek, and I usually try to talk with everybody, but I actually haven't been in a space like this, so I'm very thankful that I can exist in this space with all of you. Yeah, and uh, same here, and and not only, you know, beholden to just Star Trek, you know, panels generally have one or two people of color to sort of be the token representative, and, uh, you know, you don't just generally get for diverse women of color um, uh, to speak on these topics. So I really appreciate it. And that feels good. feels good to be in this room. Okay. So this is a good way to segue into Rafi because Michelle, one of the things that when I first met your character, you know, so in Picard, this is a character that's new to us and we don't have any history of her when she's introduced to us. And yet there is a long history that you quickly establish with Picard. You know, she has a nickname for him. They talk about, you know, literally like a falling out that we've not been privy to. So there's this feeling as the viewer of catching up to like who these people are to one another. And I felt so like seen and validated just having Mm. that person be a black woman because Mm. in another show, in another world, this could have just been an old crony white dude, you know, that's right. just a, just a, a buddy who seems more like a peer to Picard, maybe. That, that's, mm-hmm. a, that's an easy storyline to write. And so the choice to have it be someone who looks and sounds and is you, that made me feel like, oh, so all of my strange work colleagues and friendships that I've had with all these different people who are so different from me and are so uh, bound together and complex, it, it just made me feel like, 
yeah, this is that specificity we're talking about in, in telling these stories. This is specificity and representation. I don't really have a question. I guess I just wanted to say thank you for existing and being in the franchise. Sure. Uh-huh. Sure. Okay. I'll take that. Yeah. You know, one of the things I really liked about, um, you know, Rafi and bringing her to life is I've always, I've actually tried really um, conscientiously to pick the roles that I do um, to represent a woman of color in a very strong um, uh, capacity. Uh, I, I've always joked, which is no longer funny, I have to say, because of the way that, uh, you know, the, the realities of police brutality right now. But I always used to joke with my agents that if the role was a choice between taking someone who carries a gun or wears heels, I'll take the gun every time because I'm not interested in being someone's girlfriend, wife, the pretty chick, whatever. I'm not interested in that. I'm interested in moving the agenda, in being, you know, in charge, in being commanding, yeah. in having a, a stance in the scene. And I've been doing that, you know, so yay, whatever. Then I get Rafi and I, I loved her because she's perfectly imperfect. Yeah. Because I feel that oftentimes as a person of color, if you are going to be on screen, you have to sort of evoke this sort of false perfection. Like everything has to be, you know, like the straight hair, mm-hmm. the tight, this, everything is, mm, uh, we're, we're, we're just, you know, we are so, so, um, spot on correct you know and you want or inoffensive right or we the thug we the the addict we the you know right so all of a sudden we have this weird kind of you know boxes that are so so extreme and and quite one note right quite one note with Rafi you have this complexity of this woman who has been suffering who has been struggling who's been dealing with being pushed aside often with with making her own mistakes with having regrets and I just I thought that was an really important to show that we're human, (laughs) that we're strong, that we're valuable and all this stuff, but we're human. There are things that we will stumble, but it doesn't mean that we are, we should be written off. Yeah. It means that there, there, you might want to take the moment to, to interact with that person more, to lean in more. So yeah, I love that they, they created that. And I love that they have that, that person who is perfectly imperfect has a long, intimate, you know, close relationship with JL, as I call him, with Jean-Luc. Uh-huh. Because that sh- also shows that Jean-Luc could see in this person that they were valuable, regardless of their their, their imperfections. So I, I love that. I love it, too. And I think listeners will figure out that we're four different types of fans and different levels of fandom. And I don't know. It's always good to show that there's diversity within Black women, because then maybe we'll get to do like a cool like show like Girls or something where it's like, hey, here's four women that are different. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> that you might have previously lumped together, but we're individuals, right. dang it. Right. That's right, because we all don't just think the same thing. You know, there's all right? different kinds of opinions. <laughs> just like the beauty of all of our locks and stuff, you know, like. If we can yeah. please make sure to just come back to Sinequa's braids, just because that was oh, the most exciting to. thing I've ever seen. Exactly. <laughs> oh, gorgeous. Too. This is a great entry point. Black women's hair in Trek, when Sonequa Martin-Green, when those Mm -hmm. promo images for Discovery Season 3 popped out and she's got those mid-back length box braids, it snatched my breath. I posted about it. I lost my mind. Even if I wasn't involved in the franchise, I was gleeful as a fan. Yeah. How did you guys feel? Well, what you just said is really important. And I I hope that uh, people who are creating content understand that and hear that. You saw something that represented you. You saw yourself all of a sudden you saw yourself on a screen. And this is imperative. You know, we don't even realize how seeing ourselves represented can, you know, help a child decide which path they want to go. I, I always say that, 
you know, my two beautiful brown nephews, they get to grow up in classrooms now that there's actually a picture of a black man president on that wall that has all these white people. When I grew up, all I saw was, you know, presidents of white people. And I didn't realize that that, you know, subconsciously or consciously set in me like, oh, I guess that's, you know, only they get to be in that role. And it sort of creates this, this ceiling, this place where you, you physically, um, consciously or unconsciously, uh, find yourself herded into, you know, you're like, well, I guess this is where we are. Now children get to see that man on that wall and know that they are there too. It's the same as us holding on to our diversity and our, our naturalness and, and, and embrace our, our, our shades, our sizes, our width, you know, and not homogenizing into what people try to make us look like because they think that this is what a good, you know, what we're supposed to look like. So you saying that is exactly why it's imperative that we, we fight to make sure that we keep telling our stories and our stories will be told by seeing it visibly projected on a screen so little kids can see themselves, see themselves represented in society with strength and with a voice and with a presence and hallowing our, our individual look and beauty. So I love that you said that because that's, and that's why Sonequa, you know, she, ladies of color have to deal with a lot of challenging events when we walk into the hair and makeup room. Oh, you mean bullshit? <laughs> or, or, or bullshit or bullshit. We can bleep that if y'all need to. But like, I just have to call it what it is that it is traumatizing. It's it's ridiculous. <laughs> yeah. And what you're ultimately talking about is it's one thing to, you know, say that you champion diversity as a show or as a network and to hire a bunch of diverse actors. That's great. That's like step one. That is the baseline of just looking like you live in this century and like you want to reflect the world as it actually looks like, OK, well done, networks and studios for hiring us. <laughs> But what right. the next step is, truly, like, thank you for the jobs, but, like, the next right. step right. is you have to then properly support those people. Mm -hmm. You have to hear them when they say, these are my needs in the hair and makeup trailer. That means that I need someone who's proficient. This is always my line. I say I need someone who is proficient with my hair texture and skin color. And what that's they right. hear, a lot of times they hear, oh, she only wants black people to do her hair and makeup. And that's not true. What I want are people who have the skills, who have m worked as long and hard at this type of a texture that's as right. they have on blowouts and beachy waves. And that's not ridiculous to ask for. And it's only at this point in my career that I can ask for it. Yeah. And that I'm justified when I get a little uh, rude when it doesn't happen. But, you know, I see day players and I see background actors come in every day that are just going through exactly what you're talking about. That tense up moment that the hair person does and goes, oh, um, well, do you just scrunch it or can we just put it in a button? Like they're retreating from you as though you're uh, something that's on fire. <laughs> that's right. That's right. Um, so, Angelica, you've been a lifelong Trek fan, a semi lifelong Trek fan. When did it when did it all start for you? Started for me definitely when I was really young. I must have been, you know, I was under 10 years old, like my mom braiding my hair and we would be watching Star Trek The Next Generation. So like, I don't know, I associate Next Generation with like a sense of comfort and probably my most cherished like childhood memories. But I like to tell people that while Next Generation has my heart, it's Deep Space Nine that kind of has a part of my soul because I just mm -hmm. feel like such a deep connection with it that has only grown over the years. Like I definitely enjoyed it when I was younger, but there was definitely stuff going over my head that I was not catching that now I can sure, catch yeah. <laughs> the subtleties of relationships and the deafness of the storytelling. 
um, that I, you know, keep falling in love with. And I return to the show so often, especially now. I definitely feel like Deep Space Nine is speaking to our experiences currently in a way that's a little frightening, especially with episodes like Past Tense Part 1 and 2 from Season 3 and the Bell Riots, which, you know, has been something that brings me joy, that challenges me, that makes me think a lot about what I'm working towards in the world. I think, you know, I have a strange relationship with the utopian vision of Earth that Star Trek has. You know, on one hand, it's like, can the world ever get to this point? But then on the other hand, isn't that also what we're all working towards to get to to that beautiful, gleaming future where, you know, people, you know, aren't unhoused, where people have the health care they need, where people can live in a way that's only limited by their imagination. And I think that's something beautiful to hold on to right now. Yeah, I wanted to ask you about how your feelings about Trek have kind of changed? Have they changed? Has it become more relevant for you? Have the newer shows sort of reframed how you feel about the older shows? I get that that's a lot, but, you know, choose your own adventure. Answer what you want out of there. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, I think our relationship to pop culture we love changes as we change over the years. So I definitely feel like as I've gotten older, I gravitate more towards Deep Space Nine than Next Generation. Like, I just feel challenged by Deep Space Nine in a different way. But I turn to Next Gen for comfort, definitely. It's like cuddling with a nice blanket and some hot tea, you know, <laughs> Earl Grey hot baby. You know, <laughs> Absolutely. <up. laughs> um, but, you know, it's been sort of fascinating rewatching Deep Space Nine over the last like year or so, you know, just because of everything that's going on. It just feels very prescient and just a very smart show. And I just continue to be amazed by what it does on like a storytelling level. That's definitely what's changed for me over the years is being more cognizant of how Star Trek works as a story and as a narrative and how it sort of can upend our expectations of what science fiction can do in a way that's really fascinating to me. Um, But if anything, my love has just deepened over the years because Star Trek to me represents what pop culture should be. It should challenge us. It should strengthen our minds. It should warm our hearts and spirits. You know, it should hit us on every level. Absolutely. For me, what's so exciting about being part of the franchise now is that there is something for everyone. There is so there are so many different types of shows mm-hmm. that it it can really satisfy whatever you need it to do right now. And isn't that isn't that utopia? Isn't that what the the future is supposed to be? The future of entertainment is that under this one umbrella of a comfortable universe that you love, you can have so many different. Yeah, there's just there's something that can kind of feed everyone's soul. Totally. Totally. That's, I think, the beauty of Star Trek. You know, there's so much history and such different vibes of science fiction you get. Like, even though it's under the same umbrella, you can kind of, depending on your mood, go to a different part of the franchise to fall into. It's, I think that's what's really beautiful about it. Yeah. I wanted to ask you about some things that you've written about before where it comes to Deep Space Nine and the representation in Deep Space Nine. 
that is full disclosure. That is my favorite series of the kind of like the 90s three, you know, I love TNG. I love Voyager. I love them all. But Deep Space Nine was the first one that I watched. I got to watch it with my parents. I'm just like that age where like I was allowed to watch this one, but TNG I was a little too young for. So then I went back. But with Deep Space Nine, that relationship, seeing a black father with a black son and not having every storyline with them have to do with black trauma, mm. that re- I didn't even realize how much I needed that as a kid. Can you talk a little bit about what that meant for you? It brings tears to my eyes sometimes thinking about the episodes that they share together because that connection feels so genuine between the actors. And, you know, I didn't have my father in my life. So for me, the father figures I had and sometimes familial figures I had were images on the screen that I wish existed in my life. And so that relationship is one that I definitely had fun exploring and writing because it stands out in pop culture very distinctly. Mm. Like how many depictions of single black fathers do you see where they have a loving relationship with their child right? and they're committed to their child above all else? That's beautiful. That's like black love that we need to see more of on screen. Mm. And so it, it meant a lot to me to celebrate that relationship in writing because it's so layered. I just wanted to read something from one of your pieces that you wrote for Vulture. You said, no series before or since has portrayed a Black father with such complexity, crafting him as a widow, a powerful authority figure, a religious icon, a man whose morals are formed in shades of gray and whose love of his son remained his guiding principle. Ooh. Yeah, I I read that and Mm. I was like, I didn't even realize that's what I had been starved for and why I gravitated to this series. And not only was it just Jake and Ben, it was also Joseph. Like it was three generations Mm -hmm. of Black fatherhood. I don't think Joseph raised him as a single father, but he was the only representation of Cisco's parents that we saw on screen. And that was incredibly powerful to watch that. Yeah, Yeah. I completely agree. And part of the reason why I really loved it is my family is from New Orleans and Southern Louisiana. So it was like, I was like, oh, wait a minute. We're still cooking Creole food in the future. Oh, that's what, oh, look at that shit. Perfect grits out. I love it. It's so awesome. I think that's what, you know, makes Deep Space Nine stand out in a really interesting way is, yes, it it does depict some of the trauma that, you can experience as a black person, but it also really shows the joy Mm. and the beauty and the culture of it by rooting it in the specificity of New Orleans with Benjamin Sisko's background. I think that's such a smart thing the writers did because I think specificity is what we need from representation. I think that's the difference between passable and great representation is that specificity. Yeah. And, it, and is rooting it in cultural specificity because the diaspora is wide and global and beautiful and very diverse. That's and right. I think sometimes, you know, people empower creative people who are white don't realize that. Yeah. Nope. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I feel like we've saw a lot of different episodes throughout all of the series that deal with this in different ways. Right. So when you're talking about that you know, literal, like, black trauma, I can immediately think of Far Beyond the Stars uh, from DS9, which is, of course, you know, uh, directed by Avery Brooks as well. Like, maybe the one that dealt with blackness really hit it on on. the head 
the mm-hmm. most, you know, yeah. mm-hmm. aside from the TOS episode with the half, the black and white cookie people. Right. What were they right. called? The people with the half of a face? Uh, yeah, the Sharons. The Sharons. Thank you. Right. Yeah. 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 <laughs> you know, that episode far beyond, you know, I, when he says, you know, the thought it's in here, you can't erase this. You can't cancel the thought that it's in here. You know, that is the plight that we have been saying for so long. You can do all you want to do. You can cancel this. You can shut us out here or there. You can try all this stuff. But we as human beings are here and we're valuable and we contribute and we move the decimal and we have a voice. And when he, when they, you know, said, we're not going to run the whole issue or, you know, because of this, that, the other thing, and he knows why, and he makes his plea and he gets so emotional and he collapsed to the ground, that moment, it just, it, it, it hit me so hard, you know, it hit me so true. And that's why telling these stories and having, you know, having them on air and sharing is so important because people need to hear these, that this is our plight (laughs) and this plight is real and long and hard. And we've been doing this for, you know, centuries now we're making our little, you know, our little steps, but it's, uh, you know, art is one of the best um, platforms for us to amplify those, those stories. And the other one, the the one with the black and white, you know, I, I was so sad, you know, because at the end they realize that their destructiveness, that this, this, this fight of, you know, you have to be uh, less than me and I'm better than you, destroyed, literally destroyed their planet. Destroyed it. And yet, and yet, the two of them still went back to that planet because they couldn't figure out how to heal. And that's frightening. They were bound by the hate. Kendra, what was the name of that episode again? Uh, Let That Be Your Last Battlefield. Right. For anyone who doesn't fully remember, that was a TOS episode where the people were split down the center of their face. One half was white, one half was black. And upon looking at them, you just assume, as most of the crew did, that they were all the same race. But then I think like in the third act of the thing, when you realize the conflict between two of them is one of them is black on one side and the other one is black on the opposite side. And that's what made them different. So a pretty uh, pretty demonstrative example of the the frivolity and uselessness of hating someone <laughs> based on color. <laughs> nice sentence. There you go. Oh, hey, man. You know, I, one thing I'm good at is uh, talking until stuff makes sense. Um, <laughs> 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 built a career on it. <laughs> um, I guess this is a question I'd like to open up to the group. I, I'm wondering what what blackness means in Trek. And that's intentionally kind of a vague question because... I think we can go a lot of different ways with it, but like, yeah. what does it mean that Ben Cisco is a black man captain? Is that relevant? Did it make him work harder to get where he is? Did it give him greater adversity or did it not? Is it completely a moot point by the 2400s? I don't know. What do we think? I go back and forth on this because like, even this morning when I was rewatching Far Beyond the Stars, I realized that there's a scene where he's in his office and he's naming black authors. He says W.E. Du Bois. He talks about Zora Neale Hurston. He talks about uh, Native Son. And I realized as I was watching that Star Trek is always quoting Shakespeare. They are always they always have like some sort of classic English lit piece to quote or did back in sort of the 90s Trek uh, prior to Discovery. And with Discovery, I think you do start seeing that change. Like it's not just Shakespeare anymore. It's Alice in Wonderland, still a white dude, but like definitely a bit more like trippy and a little less Star Trek than uh, you might always expect. But like seeing the Cisco allegory, Benny Russell talk about all these black authors made me realize like he I believe that Cisco knows who those people are. 
And I mm, think mm-hmm. it is because of that specificity that Angelica, you were talking about. It's because he's from New Orleans and New Orleans just has like such a, such a complicated racial history. And it then made me think about why other characters haven't been talking about this. Mm, uh, mm-hmm. Someone on Twitter uh, pointed out the other day, they were joking. They said, um, Trek characters are always, always quoting these classic lit pieces when they could be quoting something like Borat. <laughs> and I was like, well, actually, that's something I'm fairly passionate about. And I, I think a lot <laughs> about, like, if I had access to the holodeck, what would I be going back to see? I would go to Beychella. Like, that is, that's just like a historical, <laughs> that's a historical event that I would think would be significant for me culturally to want to relive. And I kind of wonder if other people think like that. And I, I don't know the answer <laughs> to that. And I think that the answer changes as the writer's room changes um, mm, and sure. not necessarily as the characters change, if that makes sense. Absolutely. That reminds me of um, another DS9 episode, Bada Bing. I believe the full title is Bada Bing, Bada Bang. Is that right? Yes. Bada Bang, Bada Bing. (laughs) (laughs) And, you know, and it's a it's a small motif in the episode, not small in that it's not important, but it's short and then it gets resolved. But the fact that Cisco doesn't want to go help Vic Fontaine, holodeck character who gets um, bullied by some mobsters and all of the crew kind of comes to his defense because he's more friend than hologram, as they put it. And Cisco doesn't want to go. And when we finally hear why, he mentions that it's, you know, it's Vegas in 1962. And that was a, a fraught time in the beginning of the civil rights movement. And, you know, when it's pointed out to him that that stuff doesn't exist on the holodeck, you know, that those things haven't been, they didn't program the racism back into the, (laughs) into these Mm. fantasy suites, you know, well, he says, well, then that's a lie because that's not how things were. That really made me realize like, okay, so in Trek, there's enough acknowledgement of the racial strife. It's just talked about in such a, a far away and backwards past that it seems to suggest that there's no way that that could happen currently, you know, in the current universe. However, we still see prejudices play out when it comes to alien races. So I just, I wonder about that dichotomy sometimes. You know, we have a lot of stereotypes and a lot of like discussion about certain traits of different alien races and how they behave in a way that I'm like, well, so in 2800, is that going to be seen as backwards? Mm. I don't know, like calling Ferengi greedy all the time. Are we going to get to a place in the Trek universe where like that's looked on as like not that cute? I don't know. I guess I'm just trying to, like, include Ferengi in the Black Lives Matter movement. What am I doing? Right. Who knows? Why not? Yeah, Ferengi, those, those, see, I was about to call them selfish because they usually, they, that's how they're depicted sometimes. Mm. <laughs> but, but then on the same token, like, Deep Space Nine really broadened our understanding of Ferengi. And, and you know, I think you make a good point, though, about how, you know, Earthlings and and humanity seem to seems to have evolved beyond certain racial strife, mm-hmm. but there are still those dynamics existing in the universe that they have to meet and contend with on a different level. And I think that creates a very intriguing tension in Star Trek that I think really boils over in Deep Space Nine because of, you know, the Cardassians and Bajorans and like, Mm. the metaphors that they're supposed to exist as it keeps coming back to deep space nine because i feel at least for me maybe this is a slightly spicy take 
the presence of black actors in a show does not make a show about blackness necessarily. Mm. So I feel like mm-hmm. Star Trek has been at its blackest with Deep Space Nine specifically because of certain cultural specificity. I keep coming back to that because I think that's mm-hmm. what yeah. makes it stand out and feel like so like bracing and like mm-hmm. like ingenious within an already ingenious franchise. It just really pushes our understanding of what race looks like, you know, in the future to these people. Right, right. Yeah, that's yeah. true. Because if you think about the original, you know, yay for Gene Roddenberry for trying to push forward these stories, you know, he was trying to tell these stories and putting these veiled and sometimes not so veiled, you know, issues on screen. He had to deal with the somewhat of the restrictions that he was living in, in those times, right? Like, you know, there was not going to be the black captain at that point, period, right? You know, with the black and white, with the, you know, um, non-binary person, you know, they, they, he, they were, he was trying to push these topics and these agendas forward so that white households would turn them on, right? Yeah, make it palatable. Yeah, they would sit there and they're like, oh, that is terrible. Look at that. That's, oh, wait, is that about... It is. And or or maybe they didn't even put that together. They might have just thought it was entertainment. But I did love, you know, I, I, and it's true what you were just saying, that with DS9, we we changed that. There was no way for you not to acknowledge us. <laughs> you know, we're like, nope, the captain is. It is. That's what's going to happen if you do there. And like I said about just that one moment, that one moment, I, 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 it was just so impactful to me. It just it just brought me back to my father and to the cell rights and to all that stuff, because with no veiled language. You know, you see a man, a, a beautiful, strong black man, a statuist individual, not crumble, but we feel the pain of him trying to explain that by allowing them to not publish, you are trying to silence and crush a race. And that he was saying, you can't because I'm, it's still here. We're still here. We're still here. And to see him go down to the ground and, and cry, you know, it's, it's, it's so painful because you just, at least I feel that every person of color, whether it's their father, their brother, their partner or whatnot, or sister or mother, we've experienced that. We've experienced that moment. Now, 2020, we've experienced that. And uh, the, the fact that that was trying to be being said then, and we're still trying to explain that now that, you know, when you crush us, you try to, you, you're trying to erase us. You're trying to silence us. And we won't be silenced. Even if we fall to the ground and cry, we won't be silenced. We're still here. I think your point about the audiences was really interesting because I remember like when Deep Space Nine was on, it was a show like it was must-see viewing in my Mm -hmm. household. We had a television by our dinner table and it went to the point where if I was grounded for doing like whatever I had done that week, my parents would turn the chair away from the dinner table and I would have to eat dinner facing away from the TV so that they could watch Deep Space Nine oh, while it aired. Wow. Because this year before are yeah. <laughs> extremely petty and I respect yeah. them. I, I aspire to rise to this. <laughs> That's um, fabulous. But I had a really good friend when I was younger and he was a, a white guy. Um, we went to elementary school and middle school together and he loved Star Trek, but he was not watching Deep Space Nine. He was just watching Next Generation over and over and over again. And... In my work for the site, we get a lot of pitches in, people wanting to write about various shows. And a lot of pitches I'm getting in right now are people who are watching Deep Space Nine finally for the first time, Mm. um, like longtime Trekkies. 
and they're finally turning it on and they're like, oh, this show is A, amazing. B, it's the show for our time. Like it speaks to what we are going through so well right now. I mean, it's just very shocking to me that, well, not shocking exactly because I know why they weren't watching it in the 90s. Um, It's just really interesting that all of these people are suddenly flocking to this show, which again, like it was a show with a black lead. So, and it debuted in 93, I believe. So it probably had to be twice as good. Um, to yeah. get on. So one should have assumed that it was excellent, which it was. <laughs> That's right. That's right. Yeah. That's right. They had to work twice as hard to stay on as long as they did. Yeah. And and, and what Angelica said that, you know, it wasn't that we, you know, like I, I always just get so frustrated that when I was doing theater, um, in order for me to be a lead, like if I wanted to go Shakespeare or something, they were like, well, we're going to do, we're actually going to do Midsummer, and it's it's based in Africa. So now we have a part for you. You know, you're like, what the fuck? I, <laughs> why I got to be, why I got to be over there? Why can't it just be, I to tie to Tanya? And that's the thing that's, that's so interesting is that, you know, like people didn't watch because they were like, it's a black Star Trek. And so it's going to just be black Star Trek stories. And you just want to go, it's a human <laughs> Star Trek. Captain's black. Yes, true that. Guess what? The other show, the captain's white. Did you point that out? Oh, no, you didn't because that's what you think is normal. Yeah. And they don't seem to understand that to us, seeing our shades is normal. Yeah. And it's telling every story from a person who, of shade. It's not, a, it's not like we all of a sudden speak a different language. It's- the fact that people of color, women, people with different abilities have always had to see themselves in someone who's not like them in order to enjoy entertainment. And the fact that many white people and many men have not had to do that as much, the fact that they could look at Janeway as being a woman captain and not see themselves in her, whereas I never had that. When I was watching The Wonder Years, I was the little boy in The Wonder Like, I had to Mm -hmm. see myself as that because there's no other choice. So... I always find that people of color and women especially are, uh, you know, and non-binary people and anyone who Mm -hmm. comes from enough of a marginalized place where you haven't had the luxury of seeing yourself on screen or represented, you have found ways to identify with and empathize with people who are different from you. Exactly. And that's not saying that every white person hasn't had to do that, but it, it, it's it been trained in us. We have been forced to just to Mm -hmm. enjoy watching anything. Mm -hmm. So it, it makes total sense to me, Kendra, that, people maybe didn't watch Deep Space Nine because they didn't think it was for them. And maybe there was no malice behind that, but Mm -hmm. they just thought, oh, that's not about me. That's about black people's stuff. And like, that's just, that's not me. And now that we're finally having like kind of this long overdue national reckoning with uh, diversity and representation and race and police violence. Like it's really a lot right now, guys. Can we all agree it's a lot happening? (laughs) Girl, oh my Lord. But now it makes sense that people are seeking out things that they previously thought of as a black thing. And now they're going, oh, wait, maybe that can be an everyone thing. And maybe I can actually learn something from it. Yeah. It's, I'm glad. I wish it happened 25 years ago. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, it's, it's really, like I, I say this often about scripts, like as an actor, right? You, you get these scripts and um, you're looking for your character. And what's so frustrating to me is the assumption that I'm seeing the same world that the writer's seeing. Because apparently writer, generally being white, will say, you know, Mary and Jane and Tom and da 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 Jose, Latino. Laquisha, Black. And I want to go, oh, 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 I'm sorry. I saw all these other characters in different shades. And you didn't even, you assumed, because you don't even say Caucasian. Like, they don't even say Mary White. They just say Mary Jane, da-da-da. And so you're assuming 
that whoever's reading this script is reading this script from a white person's point of view. And so the, the only characters that have to be identified by their ethnicity are the ethnic ones. And it's a pet peeve of mine. It incites me to rage. <laughs> it does, because either say every single person's ethnicity or don't say anyone. Yeah. Or make it a real, real, real vetted out reason that you specifically have to make this person a certain type of ethnicity. Because you're making an assumption. And when you make an assumption like that, you basically dismiss the fact that I, I exist, that that world could be brown, beige, yellow, purple, green, and, and orange. Maybe Mary was disabled in my, in my world. Maybe she was in a wheelchair. And you know what? That's a pretty fucking cool story to tell. That's more interesting. <laughs> That's more interesting than just white, 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 then black and then Latina. You know what I mean? Yeah. So it's, it's one of those, like yeah. that I, I feel like if I would love if our writers would start to think on that, you know, like either don't say anything or say everything. Because if you do say it, then you need to vet it out for me. Yeah, you got to do it all. Can I tell you a actually very relevant story about when I auditioned for Star Trek Lower Decks? I got this audition, lifelong Star Trek fan, could not believe mm. that there was a world in which I would get to be part of this world because I'm a comedy person. You know, I, I do jokes and make them ups and nonsense. And Trek has always employed such incredibly like it, the gravitas of all these actors who've done Trek. I, that's not me. Like, I'm too goofy. So I go to the audition because, you know, there's so much like um, non-disclosure and secrecy around everything right. in this universe, of course. So I don't know what role I'm playing. I don't know what role is who in the thing. The only character that alludes to how they look is Tendi because it says that she's an Orion. And of course, all I remembered was Oh, that like slave character from the TOS. Like I had no other, uh, you know, frame of reference for Orion's other than that. But that was the only visual I had and maybe Cyborg for Rutherford. But for the rest of us, there was no color. There were no identifiers. I didn't even really understand gender because it just said mm. these like last names of these characters. So I go in there fully not understanding or realizing that my character was the lead of the show. Love that. So that even when I got the part, I was so thrilled to be part of it. And I thought I was a sidekick. And it wasn't until the table read oh and I God. looked at the, the lineup of the table read that my script was in the center of the table. Oh, my God. And I was like, oh, I had no idea that I got to be, you know, and it's an even handed me and Jack Quaid are kind of both the leads. But like, I had no idea. No, it's beautiful. It's because I've trained myself to think like, oh, I'm going to be the friend who pops in and says a wild thing. Yeah. I mean, props to Mike McMahon for. Yeah. Props. Props for doing that, like letting it be, you know, so that people have to discover. Sandra Oh said the same thing when she got the script from Killing Eve, that her yes. agent said, you know, check out that thing to see if you like it. And she said she stood there looking, going like this, looking for the Asian. She was like, where's the, where's the tech? Where's the, you know, whatever, concubine? Where, where am I supposed to look? And the agent, they, they were like, no, 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 you, no, the lead. Because she had, and, and how sad is that, you guys? How sad is that, that we have somehow systemically because it's it's not just the arts, it's all of us basically been fed the information that we will always be, uh, you know, the outsider, that we're not the one who gets to be have the script sitting in the center of the room. Yeah. It's 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 insidious. It's insidious. It really is. It really is. And, and you know, my whole thing is I, I just keep thinking about our youth, you know, our youth, our youth, because even us, I mean, I, I older than all you here, but, you know, even every, all of us have grown up in some format with these kinds of you know, blatant and, and, and also not so blatant restrictions. And we fought through them. We've basically been able to try to break our, the mold as much as we can. But if we can, you know, 
really give that message to our youth that there are no restrictions and that, that you are valid and that you do get your script in the center of the table, <laughs> that you are the, you're the main course. I can, I can only imagine what we can achieve. Yeah. God willing. I don't know about the rest of you, but like, even when Discovery started and that was, that was announced like 2015, 2016, I was shocked even then uh, that the lead of that show was a black woman. I was more shocked. And I remember my friend, uh, a writer, Nicole Chung, she saw the first promo pic where it's uh, Sinequa Martin-Green and Michelle Yeoh standing together. And that's the promo pic they released. And we were both freaking out. Like, I, I couldn't have expected to see that. Fully broke my brain. Yeah. So beautiful. <laughs> yeah. And just like, especially like growing up, I was allowed to watch Star Trek because my parents were Trekkies, but I wasn't allowed to watch a lot of like the sort of WB, UPN sitcoms. So like, I didn't watch like Fresh Prince when it was airing. I didn't watch like Jamie Foxx or any of that stuff. So a lot of my media was like just so whitewashed. Um, yeah. And so when TNG would air, because that was the first series that I was really watching, it came on on NBC after Fresh Prince. And so I would always get to see like the last seven minutes or so of Fresh Prince of Bel-Air. And then it would go straight into TNG. And so like that chunk was the most black people that I would see. It was like Fresh Prince and then it was Jordy. That's right. Like, and that was, yeah. <laughs> that was, and then I would see Jordy. Truly the diaspora. Yes. <laughs> that is the diaspora. I, <laughs> I, I would see them and then I would see Jordy again on like Reading Rainbow and so he to my mind was kind of like the Bar Burton was the one black actor kind of he was the leader of black people yeah that's <laughs> yeah. that's accurate yeah <laughs> he he was he was it and so that I think that was why Deep Space Nine like just really blew my mind as a kid like that was that was the most black people I'd seen on on screen together on a show mm. that was currently airing and sure. that I was allowed to watch <laughs> sure mm-hmm. It's so interesting because in my household, because again, whatever my age, we, my, my father would only let us watch Star Trek. And my dad was an actor as well, you know, and, and he, I mean, he didn't even let us come see him do shows when he was the butler or the, he wouldn't say slave, but the Uncle Tom, you know, he, he just was like, he, he was ashamed. He was embarrassed. And how horrible is that for a young man who went and fought for this country, who had dealt with all these kind of things to not want to let his family see him you know, he's taking these jobs because he needs to earn money, but he wouldn't, he didn't want us to see them because he didn't want us to see him as a, as less than it's hard. It's, I mean, can you imagine? I mean, we all know this is, this is what black men go through all the time. This eats, this eats at the very soul. And Star Trek was one of the only shows that my family would actually sit down and watch because it actually told stories of other ism, of immigration, of suppression, of oppression, of, discrimination of racism. I mean, it, it, in all of its, you know, different incarnations. What I'm hearing from all of us is that we were allowed to watch this. And I wonder if there's this commonality of it was this utopia where race didn't matter. So our black parents didn't have to see, didn't have to mm. show us a show where we were going to see ourselves be marginalized. Like that was a safe bet with any Trek series, pretty much. Like this is a show yeah. where my kid can watch it and maybe they don't have to see us being the butler or something. And and even if that wasn't like a super conscious choice, I bet it was subconscious for all of our black parents allowing us to watch this show where maybe we could be a little more free and seen and the stories told could be a little lighter for us. Even though they were heavy, they just weren't heavy in the way that we normally had to see ourselves depicted on camera. That's right. So we've talked about how Star Trek is a utopia. It is a time that is free from racial strife, even though 
you know, characters have the memory of racism from the past, from past Earth. Now, in any of the series that we've made, <laughs> that the franchise has made, theoretically, racism has been eradicated. So what Trek has done so well in other areas is influence the way the world actually is and kind of becomes, you know, we'll hear in upcoming episodes of this podcast, me talking to astronauts, scientists, people who were directly influenced by Star Trek's fictional future. So Kendra, basically I'm like, how do we make the Star Trek utopia, the the racism free future, how do we apply that and how do we get there in the real world? I expect you to have uh, uh, all the answers for this. Is that fair? (laughs) Yes. um, I'll be announcing a run for Congress very soon. So, you know, um, this is stuff that I think about. No, I absolutely won't. But um, this is a circle that I've been trying to square for a really long time. And especially in the wake of everything that's been happening with George Floyd and the not resurgence of the Black Lives Matter movement, but the the very, the prominence of it right now. And it seems to me that if everyone is living in this utopia, it is one thing to say that, okay, everything is equal now. We're all on equal footing. But I can't imagine that for some people, and I want to speak to this in a very American perspective, um, that for some people, at least here in America, there wouldn't be questions of, okay, well then why couldn't we do this sooner? And that there would be resentment about things that weren't fixed prior. And I I, I guess I think a lot about if something like, say, reparations for uh, American chattel slavery never happens, how can we get to utopia? Because it seems to me that the wrongs against Black people and other people of color in this country would all have to be made right in some way before we can actually achieve racial equality and this future utopia. So I feel like things like reparations would have to happen. I would feel that monuments like, say, not even the Confederate monuments, because those, as we have proven, are easy enough to remove. Just need like two people and a a pickaxe. Yeah, you got a rope Um, and a nearby lake. (laughs) Problem solved. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, I I can go out and, and take care of that. But for something larger, like, say, um, Mount Rushmore, for instance, that's something that I would really think that would have to be fixed and made right in some way in order to achieve a utopia. And how do you do that? And what is the plan for that? So that, that's something that I've just been thinking about a lot recently. Right. Because what you're basically saying is like, no one's going to be able to just wake up and go, yeah, racism was rough, right? Okay, let's not do it anymore. Are you guys cool? We're cool. Are we cool? We're cool. Okay, everybody's cool. All right, cool. We're done. Like, everyone's not just going to decide to have things be fixed. Like, there's going to have to be some kind of cosmic shift in order to achieve that. And I don't think anywhere in the Trek universe have any characters alluded to what that might've been from a racial standpoint. Is there something that I'm, that I'm not, that I don't know about? No, frankly, I've been thinking about it too. And I, I can't think of one and that has to be touched upon. And it's obviously not just America. Like there's so many, I mean, England is going to have a lot to answer for (laughs) um, before we get to a utopia. (laughs) And I I really, I really wonder um, what the process was, because we see pieces of it in in certain episodes, past tense we've mentioned with the Bell Riots. Um, You see what has happened after World War III in Star Trek First Contact. 
And there are, in Star Trek First Contact, one of the lead characters is a Black woman. But nothing is ever touched on as to how any harmony came to be. I personally would feel really aggrieved as, like, the descendants of slaves and the descendants of a family who have had to deal with things like redlining if I woke up one day and it was just like, okay, we're all good now. Um, we don't know. You don't have to pay for homes anymore. Everyone is being assigned a house in this new utopia. It, yeah. And that's good. Everyone should be housed and all of these things should be happening, but how are we going to make it right? And I think that that is a question that Star Trek has to tackle. Yeah. You know, you mentioned First Contact. And for me, part of seeing Alfre Woodard in that role where, you know, her race is not germane to her storyline, to her character's storyline. And she is just allowed to exist and to just be a partial protagonist in this world and to, you know, kind of be a, an audience lens, like learning what the the crew is doing for us, I guess. And, and so in a way, watching that is like, oh, cool. Here's a black woman who got a big ass role in a cool, popular movie. And she didn't have to play a slave or like talk about slavery and hardships and stuff. So that in a way, especially as an actor looking at that, that is something to be celebrated. But then, yeah, you're right. There is this question of like, well, are we ever going to address what happened? What was the big bang for race and representation on Earth that allowed this to happen? I don't know. And the other question is like, is it important to to address that in the franchise? Like, do we have to or are we allowed to just have it be an accepted truth? I, I don't know. I think at some point they have to address it because even if you're coming out of uh, this event, World War III, which I'm going to admit, I don't know what all the details were of what happened in, in that era in Trek history. But what I do know is that when people go to war, specifically using America as an example, it's usually people of color that um, suffer the brunt of the violence, whether it's because we are recruited for service uh, at, in a fairly predatory manner, or whether it's because people of color are the ones being bombed somewhere. So I think that if you have a war and then you come out of that war and a woman of color is your lead, there are questions that I have there. How was she treated? Like, what was her experience during that? Because if I'm thinking about, for instance, like my granddad's experience in the army and coming out of it, it's sort of like, they fought for this country. How were they treated afterwards? So there's, there's just questions that I have. And I think that what we were talking about with specificity, like those are important things to answer and it only makes the stories richer. And they are questions that you will start seeing being answered more as writers' rooms diversify. Exactly. And like, you know, in First Contact, who is her barber? Who is keeping her cut looking right? Yeah. Who is doing those box braids on on Michael Burnham? We have to know these questions. I have so many questions. We about need that. these answers. <laughs> <laughs> Truly, who is there a Bolian somewhere who learned to do Senegalese twists? <laughs> and does it take eight hours anymore? Like, what's the pro I actually like genuinely were laughing about it, but I as soon as I saw those braids, I was like, Okay, so what technology have they created to make oh, doing black women's hair easier? Because I would like to know. Because <laughs> if they have skin sutures and stuff with a laser that happens in the blink of an eye, then that means that I can get a full head of micro braids and have it not take 12 hours. Oh, I want to be in the future. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> so this would not be a Star Trek podcast with a bunch of black and mixed women <laughs> without talking about Plato's stepchildren. I don't know about y'all, but um, anytime I've ever told, usually like a, a well-meaning sweet white guy that I love Star Trek or that like I'm a fan before I was working, you know, in the universe or anything, 
they love to tell me the trivia. They love to tell me the trivia that this was. Mm-hmm. They go, you know, mm-hmm. Star Trek in the original series. You know what that that had, huh? That was the very first on-screen interracial kiss <laughs> aired in America. And I'm like, yeah, I know. I know 30 dudes have told me this. That's right. And I know. not being super uh, exposed to TOS as a child and not much in my adulthood either, going back and watching that episode, it is not what I thought. It is no. wild. That's not romantic kiss. It's not. No, a, yeah. it's no. for so like this. It, when you actually know the context of it, you're like, Ooh. why are we celebrating? I mean, I don't know if this uh, makes me yeah. uncomfortable. <laughs> yes. It's uncomfortable. Just for anyone who hasn't seen it recently or who maybe doesn't know, uh, the Platonians, they have this mind control where they can, you know, force Kirk and all them. They've got them captured and they can like force them to do whatever. And so they're basically making them put on a little play. They've got them all dressed up and they're making them talk and do stuff. <laughs> it's kind of a fun episode because you get to see Spock emote a lot because they're forcing him to cry and do all this stuff. And that's like a cool, you know, Leonard Nimoy is such an incredible actor. But so the kiss is literally them forcing Kirk and Uhura together in this embrace that's like tense and scary. And then finally their lips touch and then they pull apart. And I think she tells him something about how she always looked up to him on the bridge or something. I don't know. Yeah, some weird stuff, yeah. Then 90 seconds later, I think I texted Kendra yeah. this. I was like, you did not tell me that right after this kiss, this seminal moment in, you know, black television history or whatever, the Platonians are making Kirk crack a whip at her. Ah, it's on so On television. Awful. This was wild. Mm. Yeah, full disclosure, I did not remember that. So me, I actually rewatched it like just this morning because I hadn't, Ooh. before that I hadn't watched it for like four or five years. I think of us, three of us are dating white men or in relationships with white men. Yep. And I had a poster of that kiss up in my bathroom, like as a joke. Oh shit. Like it was like, it's a joke. And then I like, for a while wow. I had a picture of like Meghan Markle and Prince Harry just to piss my boyfriend off. Um, <laughs> just like reminding him. Um, but after, <laughs> now after that, I'm like, I think that has to go down because you're completely right. It's first of all, like I knew that it now had to be thought about in a Me Too context because it is a, it's a forced kiss. It's not something that they're doing willingly. And the fact, thinking about it, knowing that the script made it intentionally forced, then thinking that the censors at the time still were going to have an issue with putting it on the air is even wilder because frankly, it's not like they were concerned about the treatment of black women. It's just that they literally didn't want people to see this attractive man of the time making out with a black person. They didn't want a consensual kiss because it was it was non-consensual on both parts, which makes it like a double weirdo whammy. Also, I just recently watched an interview with Nichelle Nichols. I never knew the story behind how it actually came to be filmed. Apparently, they were instructed to film it both ways because I think, you know, people from the network or, you know, whomever. I don't know if there were actually the censors that were there mm. on set that day. Mm. But the director was kind of fretting over being the director of this episode. And so instructed Shatner and Nichols to film it. You know, they filmed the kiss. They did it a handful of times. They did it a bunch of different ways. And then they had a long break where they kind of argued about, well, if we end up not being able to use this, how's it going to play in the South, et cetera, et cetera. <laughs> so they agreed to film it the other way with no kiss, with just like a, you know, he kisses the side of her head or he, mm-hmm. I don't know, just does a dip or something. And Shatner blew the take purposefully. They were out of time. Nice. They were in like overtime. They had to shut down. And so Shatner looked down the barrel of the camera, and when it came time to do the fake kiss, he crossed his eyes. <laughs> and so 
he blew the tape and they couldn't use it. And, you know, watching Nichelle tell that story, she's laughing. She's so, I mean, gosh, just so gracious mm. and like, I didn't give a damn what they did. I just wanted them to let me go home. Yeah. You know, it was very like blase about the whole thing. But even that contextualized it in a way that I was like, okay, so now this only exists because Shatner kind of insisted that it did. Like all of it just took power away from her, away from the actor, away from the character. It's funny because I, I, the same thing, I hadn't, I hadn't seen it for uh, decades, clearly decades. And so I totally forgot about the whipping thing. I totally forgot about the crisscrossing, how they start, the, you know, the guys, Spock in here, crisscrossing because the women are just props for them. It's quite gross. And I've been saying to people, like even on panels, I'm like, Star Trek had the very first interracial kiss, you know, like, yay. And now I'm like, oh, sorry, <laughs> what am I doing? But also <laughs> how they filmed it. Like, and it's interesting hearing that story and, and hearing what the director's uh, hesitations were, because even in the kisses, because the kiss with Spock and- um, Chapel. Yeah. That kiss, that kiss, it, we actually see the kiss. Like you see them, you know, we see the lips connect and, and they sort of do this a bit and it's like, you know, and that's the paint is there. They're like, we're still here. We're still kissing or whatever. And how interesting that the kiss that happens with Ahura, he, you know, we see this, it's the front, front, front. And then he turns her and, and his eyes go to camera and he's kissing. So we don't even, you know, like they don't even let us, us see that. We don't even see this extended kiss because still that's still too you know, taboo. I mean, it really is. And I, I, and hey, we're so thankful and appreciative that they, you know, wanted to tackle it, that they put it out there and that it did get out there. Mm -hmm. But even in those parameters, they were restricted. And as you, you know, now you're telling, they were fearful. You know, the directors themselves were fearful yeah. to, to put that out there. And they, they basically were able to craft something that would be at least acceptable in, like, as you said, in the South or wherever, you know, that they were worried about. It's interesting. Yeah. Sobering. It's actually quite sobering. Like, mm, that was the way it is. In that same interview, which anyone, you can go look it up on uh, on YouTube. Um, it's just Nichelle Nichols talking about the kiss. Um, <laughs> she goes on to say that, you know, Gene Roddenberry was very for it. He really wanted it to air. He wanted it to be filmed. He was, you know, pushing for it. And even when she had another offer to maybe leave the show and was toying with the idea of leaving and kind of tried to put in her notice. You know, she says that he said, but Nichelle, like, you can't see what I'm trying to do here. Like, I'm trying to further this. I'm trying to further. Basically, he's trying to be like, I'm trying to get black people on TV more exactly. is what I inferred from yeah. her telling of that. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know that if in, in press, if I'll be talking about that moment anymore, I might, <laughs> I, think, I might instead pivot and talk about far beyond the stars or something. I'm, I'm there with you, honey. I'm literally be like, oh, Michelle, you need to pull it back. There's whips involved. <laughs> the whipping was really, yeah. Well, that was the whipping. Woo. Oh, Woo. it was like, they were like, okay, the South, you might be mad about right. the kiss, but you're going right, to like this right, next exactly. thing. Right. Oh my <laughs> Take a look at this. Yeah, right. <laughs> I just see a bunch of racists going like, phew, all right, still my favorite show. <laughs> oh, God. It's genuinely shocking just working on the on the side that I do where I'm dealing with, like, all of the pitching and, and dealing with fans. Mm -hmm. The amount of people in the fandom who don't necessarily seem to be embracing the ideals of the show that I personally think have been made very clear. Let's get into it. Let's go. <laughs> like, mm -hmm. I, I don't think you can watch the show and miss what the point is. And a lot of people have. And it's really, really interesting mm. to like watch what a selective viewing of Star Trek looks like. Mm. Um, and it doesn't mm -hmm. seem to include people of color even though that's what Roddenberry was trying to do from the beginning. Mm, 
Mm. And also it's science fiction, so you can do whatever you want. Like that's also what I always come back to with sci-fi fantasy. That's right. You can do whatever you want here. We don't we don't have any restrictions here. We have an honor right. of like free flow. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. 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 So this might be a good time to talk about fans since Kendra uh, opened the door to talking about the fandom, which I truly, I feel grateful every day to belong to a franchise where the inclusivity is baked into the content. Mm. Like the, the inclusivity is the content. So that's for the most part, that's the majority of what you like about this thing. So that's going to be reflected in the type of person you are, how you conduct yourself online for the most part. And not a lot of other franchises, you know, big sci-fi IPs and things like that can say that. Mm-hmm. Let's just say it can be a lot worse other places. Yeah. But I am curious about just reception to diversity and why it doesn't always seem that the fans are in line with those ideas. I'm trying to find the most diplomatic way to say this. <laughs> <laughs> from like from the site standpoint, it's it's been really interesting. I would say 90% of our fans, they are so smart. They are so well read and they're really open. Like a lot of people have talked recently um, about how during quarantine, they're deciding to watch Star Trek, all of Star Trek for the first time. And when you do that and they start their live tweets, they're met with people being like, oh my God, I'm so glad you enjoyed this. Oh, you should read this novel about this character if you really like them. Oh, have you checked out this YouTube clip that explains more about whatever? And people are just offering up really enthusiastically more and more information to people. And so the fandom just feels very welcoming. And one of the things that I really like about having been able to work on this property is that everyone involved seems really open to criticism and not like mean, mean criticism or, or unwarranted criticism, but on the site, we're able to publish articles that like look back at things that maybe Star Trek hasn't done completely correctly in the past, or we're able to publish stuff that places real world context onto past characters. So for instance, we ran a story last week about how to look at Odo's place from a law enforcement perspective on Deep Space Nine. So basically the working title of the article was, if all cops are bastards, is Odo a bastard? Mm -hmm. And it really like went through and, and sort of pulled apart who Odo is and like looked at his evolution as a character and came to the conclusion that no, because he, he evolved past the fascism and the fascist regime that he used to work for. He is not a bastard. He has overcome his former flaws, but that's the thing that I love about Star Trek. I think a lot of fandoms, I actually, no other fandom that I can think of allows that kind of stuff to be posted to their official website. And that kind of thing is what I very strongly believe makes a fandom more open when you are open to criticism Mm. and when you are open to being able to look beyond yourself. Cause that's what I wanted from all of my fandoms. Like when I was younger, I would, I always wrote fix it fan fiction. So like if I was, if I was writing, say, fanfic about Buffy, I was always adding in more black characters because for me, that was like how to fix it. Whereas with Star Trek, all of the fanfic that I wrote, (laughs) A, it was all Deep Space Nine. And it was just all about adventures that like a character I would make up would have with Jake on on the space station. Mm. I never like Mm. had to build a place for myself Mm. in, in that. 
And so that's what I'm like really that. happy that I'm able to help carry forward with, right. with Star Trek. Yeah. Right. Yeah. It's interesting for me with Rafi because, uh, you know, I didn't know what to expect with the fans. I didn't know what was going to happen. I didn't know if they were going to receive her or what. Uh, I'm very thankful that, uh, you know, it's been vastly warm and really welcoming. And I also quite enjoy that the conversation is generally about her addiction. Mm. And I really love that because it's not that there's a black lady who's addicted. They're, they're, we're talking about addiction yeah, as it affects all of us, you know, and that it's not something that's just about people who are shooting up and nodding out on the street. It's about people who are suffering with, you know, depression, who are suffering with regrets and haunts and, and are trying to, you know, figure out how do we, how do I wake up? How can I get myself across the floor? And I, I love, I love that, you know, that we, that the conversation has gone beyond my shade. And I'm also glad that I can tell that story as a woman of color, yes. because there are so much things that projecting on us about, um, you know, if women of color are not the most perfect thing or, you know, how we're systemically, you know, murdered more than anybody else. And, you know, can you wonder why people of color have, you know, are, women are stressed at times? Hello. Um, <laughs> and, and and truthfully, the thing that's so interesting is the only thing that I got like some pushback from was the fact that Rafi calls uh, Jean-Luc JL, <laughs> which I thought was so funny. People were like, that's not fair. Don't call her. And you want to go, no, uh-uh, this is the thing. She can call him that because she is like, they got that. They have a relationship that enables her to do that. And that's what they, you know, like I want people to realize that, that there's a reason, like he lets her call her JL. Yeah. It's not that he doesn't, he, that's, they have a relationship. This woman of color and this, you know, heralded captain have a have a relationship that's close and and um, complicated, and that we lean on each other, you know, um, to to get through the day. I saw a little bit of that too, and I remember thinking, like, what a luxury that the thing the fans are mad at is something they would also be mad at a white guy for doing. Like, yes. <laughs> if your character was a white man calling him JL, they'd be just as mad, probably. Exactly. And that's true equality, you know, is if I can just get <laughs> shit on in the same way that you're going to shit on Jack Quaid or somebody else. Like, yeah, I don't know. The Internet was a mistake, probably. <laughs> <laughs> it often is. <laughs> um, Angelica, I wanted to ask you just on this same vein from like a writing standpoint. I mean, do you meet many other black women writers who want to talk about Trek? Or, or do you feel that your words are received differently when people know what color you are? That's a, your second question is quite loaded because I definitely think, actually, I don't think I know there's been pushback mm. as a black critic, as a black mm -hmm. woman critic. I've gotten like a lot of really weird, ridiculous pushback, but thankfully not really from Star Trek fans. You know, a lot of the Trekkie fans I follow tend to be Deep Space Nine obsessive. So I think they come already with a built-in interest in race. Right. So it's a little bit different. Sure, yeah. You know, and that's what I've specifically written about mostly has been Deep Space Nine. So I haven't had to deal with too much pushback in that arena with those specific articles. But I would say as a whole, yeah, definitely there's been pushback and uh, it feels like sometimes a minefield to navigate as a black woman critic because because there is this expectation that you should praise everything black mm. and not critique it at all and I'm like mm -hmm. sorry that's my job I'm a critic <laughs> like what are you I'm not a press person I'm not here to get poll quotes I'm a critic <laughs> and a writer I think we all go through that as a black writer I've definitely I gave Red Tails a glowing review. 
back when I first saw it. I knew that I did not like that movie, but I had just <laughs> started in like writing and this was like one of my first big movie reviews. And I was like, I cannot say anything bad about this movie. Oh my mm. God. Like I have to like give it glowing. I'm so glad that the site that I used to write for doesn't exist anymore. But <laughs> point being, <laughs> I feel you on that one. Yeah. Yeah. It's tricky to navigate, but you know, you're doing your art. I think we can all feel the same way. Like we're doing our art out of love and that love means we should be able to critique certain things or like, you know, be able to say, no, I don't want to do that with my character or no, I don't think this piece that I'm editing is like totally hitting home. So, you know, I think sometimes people don't hold a lot of space for black women in artistic fields because there's an expectation that you should play your role a certain way so to speak so it can be kind Mm -hmm. of hard when you're trying to bring your full authentic self to the fore and people are uncomfortable with it but i say just keep keep it moving i mean this is what you're getting (laughs) that's right that's right exactly i actually can't think of a better way to end this fabulous discussion than keep it moving this is what you're getting I think in a way that kind of embodies what we all represent, whether it's the writing, the being on camera, you know, uh, all the different ways that we are able to represent ourselves within this incredible property. I mean, just I feel so fortunate to be part of it. And I think we should probably say goodbye. Well, thank you so much. It's been an honor and awesome to be uh, spending this time and sharing this space with you. Amazing, beautiful, intelligent, strong women. So thank you for, for that. Oh, thank you. You as well, Michelle. It's been a real pleasure. Folks, what I tell you, was that great or what? What if they said no right now? I can't hear them. It's the beauty of this format. Again, this is not a dialogue. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Tani, that was so great. And thank you so much for leading that discussion in in such a great way. And uh, I loved everyone's perspectives and stories and it, it, it really warmed my heart and lifted my spirits. It was very, there's something that was very hopeful about it as well. Oh, that's nice. That's good to hear. It felt very fun and good, even more so than I expected it to. But yeah, that's all I got for this week. So I guess uh, we should tell people, please, if you like the show, rate it, review it, share it, like it. Yeah, you too can be a part of uh, whatever this is. All right, Tony, I guess uh, we'll see each other next week. That sounds good. Thanks for listening to the Pod Directive. Bye. Bye, everybody. Want more Trek? If you live in the U.S., go to CBS All Access for classic episodes of Star Trek The Original Series, Star Trek The Next Generation, Star Trek Deep Space Nine, Star Trek Voyager, and Star Trek Enterprise, and new seasons of Star Trek Discovery, and Star Trek Picard. In Canada, watch Star Trek Discovery and Star Trek Picard on Bell Media CTV Sci-Fi Channel. Star Trek Discovery streams on Netflix in 188 countries. And Star Trek Picard does the same on Amazon Prime. Thank you all for listening. We'll see you next time. Pew, 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 pew. Pew. Friday. TV's hottest show is Fire Country. I'm not a hero. I'm in orange for a reason. They're taking 12 months off your sentence. You're free. 
lady. With a special epic season finale. Now that I'm out, I need something to get me up in the morning. You are a firefighter. Used to be. That will be unforgettable. In the name of your life's happiness, go get your girl. She's getting married tomorrow. Says, when do you let anything get in the way of what you want? The Fire Country season finale, Friday, 9, 8 central on CBS and streaming on Paramount+. Plus.